The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. So I, I, I'm for cheating. Sometimes I just buy the ready-made custard. This is getting more sordid by the second pre-lease. Four. Nerve tag. We're being governed by acronyms, Liam. Nerve tag. Three. <laughs> we would be far better injecting the 20-year-olds who might actually contribute to society rather than us oldies. We've never played Monopoly, have we? It gets very ugly. There have been instances where the board has been thrown into the air. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to this special Christmas edition of Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Cancelling Christmas would be inhuman, said Boris Johnson. Ten out of ten, Prime Minister. Yet instead of our promised five-day, three-household frolicking, the Christmas we were holding out for, there's just a 24-hour window of festivities. And millions of us will spend the big day alone, forbidden to travel from the most restrictive tiers to meet with friends and relatives elsewhere. As the Brexit talks come to a head, the culmination of four years of finger-pointing and bickering, of high politics and low diplomacy, the whole shebang's being overshadowed by Covid Christmas madness for there's a new mutated virus, which saw Emmanuel Macron close cross-channel borders, even though this new Covid strain's actually been around for months. A small saving grace, Alison, is this, our Christmas Eve voyage to planet normal. Just one more sleep until Santa. What are you hoping for in your stocking? (laughs) Well, I'm struggling to get my antlers over my headphones, so that's just a a small (laughs) technical difficulty. But we have got... um, this is an Adolik Plowin. That's Happy Christmas in Welsh for Santa, which my mum sent me. So I'm, um, I've got I'm a bell. Do you want to hear the bell? Here we go. Christmas, Christmas go. bell. <laughs> She's finally lost it. <laughs> finally lost it. Who can blame me? It's been, it's been um, as we know, it's been another serene, evidence-based uh, week on planet Earth. As you said in your introduction, we've had this mutation in the. Covid virus and nerve tag. We're being governed by acronyms, Liam. Nerve tag. I mean, who made <laughs> people are taking our money? They're paid to come up with absolutely contorted acronyms like the new and emerging respiratory virus threats advisory. Exactly. Group. Nerve, well, tag. nerve tag. Nerve uh, tag. I don't know why we laugh. It's hysterical. Anyway, nerve tag have basically said that this virus, which actually has been around for quite some time, but they're saying that it's 70% more transmissible, 70% more than what. But um, yeah, so Boris had said we were going to have this five days of Christmas and everybody had made their plans based around that. And then on Saturday at four o'clock, that was all off. And we were allowed to have one day so people couldn't travel. And, and guess what, Liam? What happens to the population of London if you tell them at four o'clock that at midnight they won't be allowed to go and see their families at Christmas? Predictably, they scarper. They scarper, including my daughter and various of her friends. And, and, and this is the little irony, Liam. They had been self-isolating, these kids in their 20s, so that they wouldn't pose any risk to older members of their family. And then they were hurtling for these packed trains. And if they'd been given a bit more notice, they could have made their way home in a safer manner. So I just felt that 
I felt quite broken, actually. I felt tearful. I'm sure around the country, millions of other people were feeling very upset, distraught, because Christmas does mean something. Christmas from childhood has this sort of totemic power. It has a, you know, a capacity to renew us, a, a kindle a sense of magic in people and a sense of hope. And, and, that, and that was dashed. And I suppose my question for you would be, on what evidence has this terrible thing been done to us? Again, at the end of a brutal year when people were, I think I said in the column today, they were holding on to a slender handrail of hope that we'd get to Christmas and we'd sort of be okay. And what's the evidence for that? The evidence does seem quite scant, doesn't it? Quite sparse. I thought you really wrote beautifully in your column in today's Telegraph about what Christmas means to me, to you. Everyone's a child at heart at Christmas. You had this wonderful image of uh, a, a granny's hand reaching out for a young relative, linking between the generations. You know, we're lucky we come from loving families, but even people who aren't from big families, it's a time for getting together with friends and what relatives you do have. And it is a very special thing. And as you say, you can't put those kind of sentiments in the spreadsheet of a uh, epidemiologist, mm. their modelling data, telling the government to do this. It did seem really, really high-handed. And it was strange because we had Professor Robert yes. Dingwall, didn't <clears throat> we, we did, after yes. the announcement, who is from Nerve Tag. And even he said, you know, he was surprised that the document that they'd put together had been transformed, quotes, over the course of 24 hours into a national panic. It did seem to me, Alison, as if, again, this this group of particularly gung-ho epidemiologists surrounding the Prime Minister who have his ear produced at just a particular moment, just as they produced the doom graph to justify the November lockdown, they produced these concerns about a mutated COVID virus, which we know has been around since September. That's not controversial. In order to, it seems, force the government into this last-minute U-turn Christmas lockdown, which, as you say, has had huge commercial ramifications, but also emotional ramifications, given that that Christmas respite that so many of us were relying on to see our elderly relatives, our young relatives, to bring loved ones together, was snatched away from us at the last moment. It was interesting that at the press briefing, did you notice that Sir Patrick Valance, Sir Patrick Valance was very careful to say that the new strain, although he thought it was more transmissible, was not more dangerous. So they're covering their backsides there, Liam. And if, and if it's yeah. not more dangerous, then what is all this national panic, Matt Hancock claiming it's out of control? What's that about? And across in Germany, Angela Merkel's pandemic guru, a guy called Christian Drosten, he said that the mutation was almost certainly spreading in Germany now, but he was not particularly worried by the claim that the new strain was 70% more transmissible because this very eminent scientist said there are too many unknown strains to say something like that. So that was a kind of that was a kind of rebuke, I thought, to our sort of hysteric national performance. And the result of this, Liam, wasn't just shutting down 
the southeast and London when they seem to be doing very well. We'll talk about George and the hospital figures later, but there's no issue at the moment with hospital bed occupancy. But of course, immediately other people took us at, took us at our word, didn't they? And forty countries banned British people from going there. I was trying. I was trying to think this morning where where, where we were still allowed to go. What do you think, Alain Bator? <laughs> I'm heading for Chad, I don't know about you. N'Djamena's lovely at this time of year. Turkmenistan. I mean, you know, you literally think all these countries. And apparently the the reaction throughout Europe was, I think they think, you know, have the, have the, have the Brits lost it? You made the point to me, didn't you, that, that we do more genome sequencing than some of these other countries. So they've got it as well, but they just aren't as up to speed. Is that right? Our genome sequencing procedures and scientists are world class we are among the very best in the field at detecting these viruses it may be that we're being punished for simply identifying the virus in a more sort of concrete and formal way uh, than other countries of course some countries took the sensible routes and for a while banned some forms of travel to the uk but without banning freight and, and mm. lorries given that lorry drivers live in their cabs most of the time microwaving their suppers mm. but of course emmanuel macron the pocket napoleon couldn't resist mm. you know complete ban instantly on lorries let's see the lorry parks let's see all the people queuing in kent let's get brexit related chaos on the front of the nation's front pages knowing the bbc will go into uber brexit chaos mode just as a taste in the middle of these negotiations. That was nothing to do with Brexit. It was all to do with his own overreaction to our identification of a mutated virus that everybody already knew was there. And the Commission and the other EU nations have rightly chided him and he's had to do a U-turn. I think a lot of this focus on the mutated virus is yet again an overfocus on cases rather than hospitalizations, ICU usage, intensive care unit, and indeed deaths. I'm looking, Alison, as I do every day at the ONS COVID dashboard, and I'm looking at deaths. And since late November, data is incomplete and it will be updated. But the seven-day moving average is on a downward trajectory still, and that's what counts. And we've never been able to have a proper conversation, have no, we? No. A national conversation about the idea that actually – if more of us have had COVID and deaths are controlled and falling, isn't yeah, that good? It is good. It is good. Isn't that good? And that's the the problem because, again, all this focus has been on cases of COVID rather than the outcomes that really matter, hospitalizations and deaths. And before we get on to talking about what games we're going to be playing tomorrow and what your favourite quality street is, Toffee Finger, let's hear from... George, because I know George has been telling you again the NHS England data relating to COVID. What's George's latest missive? Well, I said to George, not his real name, that Grant Shapps had just said that in the southeast, 50% of all hospital beds are occupied by COVID patients. And George came back, no, the southeast has passed the April peak. That's because it's winter, Liam. 
So in winter, you've got more of these infections than in spring. But overall, the number of COVID patients only represents about one in five of all occupied beds. That's a quote from George. Yeah? That's a quote from George. There are two hospitals in the southeast and one in London, which are approaching 50% COVID occupancy, but the rest are nowhere near that level. Now, this is the critical thing. And this is what a lot of people are picking up on now. Nosocomial infections. That's my word of the year, Halligan. I couldn't even say it, let alone understand it. It's taken me nine months to be able to say it. Um, It's a bit like a nosocomial. It's like, of course you can, Malcolm. It's it's, it's a sort of... (laughs) Vicks Sinex nasal spray. Oh, mum, I can't do my exams with a blocked up nose. Of course you can, Malcolm. So nosocomial infections, that's hospital-acquired infections, have been now at a consistent level of 20 to 25% in the southeast since early October. So let's spell that out, Liam. A quarter of all those hospital admissions you see on the news every night, they are actually got in hospital. We know, don't we, that there have been sixty to 65,000 excess deaths so far this year, some slash many of which will be due solely to Mm. COVID. Mm. Lots of others will be antagonised partly with COVID, linked to COVID. This disease is clearly ghastly. It's clearly deadly. The question is, does the fatality rate of COVID, does its deadliness, which is nothing like Ebola or or something like that, or smallpox, nothing, a tiny percentage compared, does it warrant locking down the whole economy? Does it warrant completely upending our way of life. And you and I would say, while stressing the the need to deal with COVID in a responsible way, to take precautions, certainly to shield the elderly and other people with comorbidities and vulnerabilities, we would say, wouldn't we, that we need a much more age-segregated approach, a more moderate, a more balanced approach. Mm. And we would both say, having put a huge effort in over the years in general, investigating what governments do, but in particular over recent months, analysing the response to COVID, talking to political, medical, academic insiders, as we both have been, you in particular with your superb contacts you've developed within the NHS, we would say that we think there should be a more balanced approach and we think the politicians are being scared into and almost forced into increasingly extreme responses to what is a serious situation, but should be managed in a more moderate and balanced way. I think that's what we both believe, right? Absolutely, that's what we believe. And uh, I noticed this week, this is your area, but UK borrowing rose to you know a mere 31.6 billion. In a month. That's usually an annual number, something like that, for a deficit. We'll talk about uh, monopoly money later, but it really is. And and, uh, I think we had to, let's pause for a moment to savour the irony of blessed Rishi Sunak telling us that we all had to rush out and spend all the money that we've stashed away during lockdown. And then the very next day. (laughs) The very next day. What happened, Liam? Tell us what happened. (laughs) The very next day, (laughs) everyone was in tears. Shops are shut. Rush out and spend your money, but you can't get you can't get in the doors. But I, I think you really you really nailed it this week, Alison. I mean, you you nail it most weeks, of course. But in your column, when you said you were talking about the epidemiologists advising government putting forward this advice, the things they can and can't put in their spreadsheets, you said, what about the risk of psychological harm to people already at the end of their tether? What about the helpless sense of hopelessness? Which modeler can weigh the value of the healing pleasure of laughter 
over silly cracker mottos or the ancient antagonisms of Monopoly. <laughs> so I want to ask you, Alison, right? Mm. We've never played Monopoly, have we? That's just as well. Because- there is no chance of me ever <laughs> playing Monopoly with you because you've got form and you've got reputation. It gets very ugly. <laughs> there have been instances where the board has been thrown into the air. <laughs> The family now, it's absolutely no-go because mummy's a complete nightmare. I mean, if I, if I don't get Park Lane, it's downhill from there, really. I learned to play Monopoly during endless uh, childhood summers in Ireland, like a lot of London Irish people. You're sent back to the old country during the summer holidays mm. so you don't get into trouble. That was the way in the 70s and 80s. And my Irish cousins taught me very quickly. <laughs> I don't know if this is Irish Monopoly, but it's certainly how it's played in... <laughs> in County Mayo, where I spent those those lovely days. Basically, the first thing you've got to do in Irish Monopoly is you've got to do a deal with the banker and you buy the jail. Right? <laughs> and once you've bought the jail, you can then extort people because <laughs> then they have to bribe their way out of jail and they can bribe you in kind or with cash. <laughs> no wonder you grew up to be the leading economics correspondent that you are with that kind of... I think that should be incorporated into the entire British Isles one. You know, what I did was I, as a special Christmas thing, you've probably heard of Dr. Claire Craig, uh, Liam. Of course, yeah. She's been very, very active on Twitter, real staunch commentary on, on the COVID crisis. Extraordinary pathologist with a real eye for detail in the data. And I said to Claire... Could she give Planet Normal some ideas of the actual Christmas dangers? You know, because we're all told, going back to the family, oh, my God, you're going to kill Granny. That's that's what we've been told, haven't we? Yeah. So Claire did us a very funny, risky little Christmas list. Just to give you some idea, Liam, the risk of someone in their 80s dying at some point in December or January is 233 in 100,000, right? Mm. The peak risk per day of dying over Christmas period for someone over 80 is five in a hundred thousand. Now going down the list, we've got the risk of your house having a house fire caused by candles at Christmas. That is three point six in a hundred thousand. The risk of getting food poisoning from the turkey is three point five per hundred thousand. Ban turkeys, ban candles. Candles, turkeys, all banned. And this is I really I really like this one. Risk of an A and E attendance for an accident with the tree. That's 1.5 per 100,000. That, that's my husband who always leaves putting the fairy on the top to the last minute when we've had a few drinks. <laughs> Perched on the arm of the sofa, trying to trying to land this angel. <laughs> Docking space station. <laughs> but this now, I think this is really interesting. So the chance of someone asymptomatic with COVID killing granny if she's in her 80s over Christmas is 0.56 risk per 100,000. So that's about a third of the risk of injuring yourself putting the fairy on the tree. It is, and it's almost directly comparable with 0.53 per 100,000, which is A&E attendance for an accident with the lights. (laughs) (laughs) What's the percentage playing Monopoly with you per 100,000? That's like 99,000. That's going to be 99.8,000. That's going to be A and E admission practically guaranteed. It begins as a love story. Couples who meet as young activists bonded in a fight against injustice. We seem to have similar outlooks in life. He often made me feel very special. It felt like we were in love. 
I remember it being quite magical. As far as I was concerned, we had a future together. I fully did envisage my future with him. But then he starts acting strangely. Suddenly there were secrets and there were inconsistencies and there were things that didn't make sense. Then one day he leaves. I came home from work and I realised immediately that he'd gone. Vanishes without a trace. And the reason why these men disappear is so disturbing, it's led to a formal apology from the state. I never for a moment thought that it would be what it actually turned out to be. This is Bed of Lies, the true story of one of the biggest scandals in recent British history and the latest podcast from The Telegraph. Talk about the Stasi in East Germany. That's not how we understand our society. A tale that travels from the safety of a loving bedroom to the very heart of the law. Search for Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this. our planet normal stowaway this week, Alison? Well, I was racking my brain, Slim, because I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit away from our traditional sort of economics politicians type people? And someone I absolutely adore is Prue Leith. People will know Prue, obviously, from having taken the Mary Berry slot on Great British Bake Off. In fact, she has a very distinguished history. Liam, as you'll know, came over to the UK in 1960 set up the famous Leith's restaurant. So she had her own restaurant by the time she was 29. She's also been tremendously campaigning for getting good food. I remember an early effort to get good food onto British Rail, bless her. And more recently, she's been, (laughs) I know. Congealed egg sandwiches, my God. The closest I've come to death was an egg mayonnaise sandwich on British Rail. But Prue has been campaigning more recently and she's working with the government on improving hospital food. And trust me, if anyone can pull off that miracle, it's this rather extraordinary 80-year-old. Can you believe it? Wow. And... She's still ambitious. She's 80 and she's still ambitious. So I began by teasing her about the fact that she wasn't yet a dame. You're not a dame yet, are you? When are you going to be a dame? I don't know. You have to write in and tell them that you think I should be a dame. <laughs> Listen, I've got a good track record of getting damehoods, Mrs. Oh, right. Oh, well, please have a go for me. I mean, I'd absolutely love to be a dame. People always pretend, you know, oh, I haven't even thought of it. I used to have ambitions to be in the House of Lords because I always thought I'd be, you know, I could go on being sort of semi-political. And, you know, fix things if I could be in the House of Lords. And so I applied, you know, by the um, People's Peers route. Yes. And I got put on a shortlist and I had an interview. And then they wrote kindly to me and said, we don't, we don't quite need your skills at the moment. We have room for you. But we, we really think you'll be wonderful. Be wonderful. So you are in a draw waiting to be offered. And then when I was 70, I got a letter saying they've taken me out of the draw and put me in the bin. <laughs> Prue Leith, welcome to Planet Normal. We've got you a special spacesuit for the journey with a chunky necklace made of moon rock. We thought you'd be particularly pleased with that. Well, I wouldn't go anywhere without a necklace. You know that. I know you wouldn't. So let's just start by saying what's going on in life at the moment. I mean, unbelievably, you're 80. I know that viewers of the Great British Bake Off were reeling (laughs) when they found that you were 80. But you recently had the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, I know. Have you felt vulnerable because of your age at this time when everybody 
in that age brackets being called vulnerable and and how how was the vaccine well the, first of all i was delighted and rather thrilled to be asked to have a vaccine so early on the first day so i said yes mm. and no i've never felt vulnerable and in fact to be absolutely honest although i was very glad to get the vaccine and, and grateful for it i think it's the wrong priorities i think really and truly the economy is going to be in such trouble we would be far better injecting the 45-year-olds or the 20-year-olds who have a career ahead of them and might actually contribute to society rather than us oldies. You know, I think we should just take our chance. <laughs> I, had a, I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> I mean, I think obviously, the, the, I just think that maybe it would be better to vaccinate people who are genuinely vulnerable, mm. you know, who've got diabetes or who've, you know, any of those problems that are more likely to see them off with COVID. Yes. There'd be some argument for that. But to just blanketly take everybody who's over 80, you know, some of us are fine. I suppose that's because that's where most of the sort of deaths have, have, have occurred. Yes, they ha- yes, most of the deaths have occurred in the over 80s. Most deaths always occur in the over 80s. Mm. That's when you're mm. closer to the end of your life. And also, if you look carefully at those figures, most of those people had underlying health problems. If you put it really brutally, if you're sitting in a boat and you can only save two people, one is a 30-year-old with young children and a bit and running a business, mm. and one mm. is their great-grandmother who is 82, which one are you going to save? If you're thinking about society, you want to save the person who's got a life ahead of them, not the person who's had a life and had a great, in my case, had a great life. Anyway, <laughs> I'll get into trouble for saying all that, I'm sure, but there we are. Well, government has become obsessed with this safetyism, they call it, hasn't it, that there must be no no death. And you obviously started out your great career in, as a, you know, in restaurants, and that's a sector that's just been hit appallingly, isn't it? Absolutely, dreadfully. And uh, I do feel, I do really feel for the hospitality sector, and I just... I just, I don't know what I would do if I had mm. a, a business today. I would be so distressed. I mean, I employed 500 people, and I just think those 500 people would not be working. Mm. It is devastating to the economy. But you know what? The great thing about chefs and restaurateurs generally is they are very creative people and very energetic. Mm. And the hospitality sector will definitely recover because people want to eat out. You know, hairdressers and cooks will never actually starve. If you look what cooks are doing at the moment, or chefs, almost every one of them has that I know has gone into doing takeaways or running little businesses, delivering food or something. Their instinct is to work, and they will find a way to do it. But, of course, there will be lots of businesses that are just devastated by it, and it's horrible. Yes. So you were filming Great British Bake Off in COVID-secure conditions. Uh, tell me you weren't stuck in a, sharing a bathroom with Paul Hollywood. Just reassure us, No, I wasn't sure. In fact, I was rather <laughs> nervous when I realised what we were going to do that I was going to be stuck in a, a bubble with three men, Matt Lucas, yes. Noel Fielding, and Paul Hollywood, not one of which is a true grown-up. <laughs> <laughs> What's their average mental age, do you think? No, but it's pretty young. 
and they're very proud of it. They're all, they, 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 I mean, Noel and Matt particularly, um, they're half their charm and their success is that they are deliberately childish and silly. Yes. And Paul is close. <laughs> you know, he, I mean, he, he's a very interesting mixture, Paul, because he's, he's so lovely. And, but he, what he's really nuts about is fast cars, sport, and fairy cakes. I mean, it's wonderful. It's such a sort of contrast, isn't it? Anyway, I, I was a bit nervous about um, going into a bubble with that lot. But, of course, they turned out to be just the right people for a bubble because, I mean, Paul, for example, brought his enormous commercial pizza oven mm-hmm. and set it up and made us all pizzas. On two nights, we had pizza nights. Wow. And he... He baked pizzas, 200 of them, and they were the best pizzas you've ever had. And he was dripping with sweat. He was wearing a T-shirt that one of the wardrobe girls had made for him, and it said Paul's Pizza Night or something in sequins on, on his bosom. And, um, and he was knocking out these pizzas. It was just such fun. You know, it was like a Butlin's holiday camp. Hmm. You know, one night Matt Lucas called the numbers and we did bingo. We had a bingo night. It was just hilarious and we had movies and we had tennis tournament going on and rounders and football and you know oldies like me could just sit there with a drink in hand on the lawn in a heat wave watching the young run around it was a heat wave wasn't it I mean those poor people in the tent oh my goodness I mean you know know. this year I was um I was really rooting for Ermine that fabulous French baker she's so lovely isn't she lovely came unstuck in patisserie week of all weeks and there was an outcry when she was eliminated in the semi-final do you ever look back and think maybe we got that wrong no, because, you know, the, the thing is, it's really easy for us, but it, it's difficult for the public to understand. They, they forget that the rules of Bake Off are that we judge what we taste that day. Yeah. And if you fail on that day, it does not matter. You could have won Star Baker every single week up until then. But if you fail on that week and you're the worst, as she was, that's it. It's, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. I've got a very butter-stained, smeared copy of Leith's cookery Bible. Now, your stuff proves a bit above my pay grade, um, <laughs> but I do I do love it. And when I'm trying to impress people, I, I go back to it again and again. What should we be cooking for Christmas this year? Oh, heavens, I don't know. I mean, I'm faced personally with the fact that I've ordered a 14-pound turkey for my entire family, which is my son and daughter and all their children who are going to be here. And, of course, now John and I are faced with <laughs> 14-pound <laughs> turkey for two. <laughs> However, we will put it in the freezer and perhaps resurrect it at Easter or something or sometime. Yes. So we're going to eat duck. If you're only two, mm-hmm. a duck is a really good idea because, first of all, it's such a treat. It's such a delicious flavor. And so I'm going to do what I used to do with my eyes closed when we ha- I had Leith's restaurant, our speciality dish was Leith's duckling, which was a sort of cross between a Chinese crispy duck Ooh, delicious. and an English roast duck. It had an or a French orange sauce, a duck à l'orange. And it has a slightly orange flavoured sauce with a burnt caramel base and fried almonds on top of it with chopped celery and a really good gravy. So our most famous dish was Leith's duckling. So we're going to have that, which I haven't cooked for 15 years or something, but I will. And um, roast potatoes. Do you make your own mincemeat? 
or are there any Christmas cheats that you that you do? Well, I do, but I don't think you need to. I mean, you could always doctor. I mean, you could you can get um, a jar of mincemeat, and which is usually too sweet, but if you put a chopped fresh apple into it or some lemon juice, it'll lighten it a bit for mince pies if you want to make your own. You know, I think almost everything. If you if you're making stuffing for a bird, say you're stuffing a chicken or a, or a turkey. If you don't want to do the whole thing, mince mince the pork and all the rest of it, you can buy sausage meat and then doctor it by putting some a, a bit of fried onion and some chopped up chestnuts or whatever you like. Really, you can you can improve it, let's say. But I also think one of the great things to remember about Christmas is that nobody is coming here to award you Michelin stars. Your skill in cooking is not what they're interested in. Mm-hmm. If your family are allowed to come at all, mm. you can be sure that they're not there as a food judge. They want you happy and relaxed and, and they've come to see you, for yes. goodness sake. So I think if you want to buy the Christmas pudding, get the, I don't know, I mean, I'm a great believer in mashed potato that's frozen. Are you? That's controversial. Well, you know what? A good good frozen mash is exactly what it says on the thing. It is potatoes, sometimes with a bit of butter in them. And I find in my old age that mashing with a hand masher, in fact, I've asked my husband for, for an electric masher for Christmas. Ah, is, oh, is there such a <laughs> Be- thing? <laughs> yeah, there is. Because I find in my old age with a bad shoulder that mashing potatoes is quite a struggle. So I, I, I'm for cheating and I'm not above I'm cheating with bird's custard either. Oh, now. Well, I generally, I do cheat. I mean, I make it, <laughs> uh, sometimes I just buy the ready-made custard. This is getting more sorted by the second pre-leaf. Yeah, uh... <laughs> no, ready-made custard. And then I stick a bit of I stick a bit of cream or yogurt into it to lighten it a bit because usually it's a bit too thick and gluggy. Yeah, yes. And honestly, nobody knows the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I remember attending a, um, a panel discussion and all these quite senior women were being asked to reflect on what motivated them to achieve so much in a male-dominated workplace. And uh, you piped up, I wanted to make lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I do like making money, no question. Well, do you think that being South African originally, do you, do you think that has made you more capable of being upfront and outspoken? Well, yes, I think so. I think Australians, South Africans... Um, maybe Americans, I'm not sure, but do share a kind of um, down-to-earth honesty that is sort of not acceptable in polite society. And so I often don't know when I'm doing something wrong. You know, obviously in my long life I've had, because of being very involved in a lot of charities and educational things and so on, I've had quite a lot to do with um, the royal family, for example. And that quite tricky in a way because, you know, there are rules about you don't speak to the Queen before she speaks to you. And I, 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 I'll forget. <laughs> I will just forget and charge in and, and ask, ask the Queen some question or other. And she's very polite and answers. But I don't, I, you know, I'm not so hidebound by the class thing. I don't think there's any real difference between me and the dustman or the, you know, the mm. COVID cleaner on the Bake Off set, who turned out to be then a most wonderful, delightful family. They were absolutely, I don't see any difference between them and me, and I don't see any difference between the royal family and me. I don't have that English class obsession. I think that's probably been 
just hugely helpful to your success here. You've been you've been a very prominent campaigner in trying to improve British food. I mean, you arrived here in 1960. I mean, I can I was growing up as a child in the child in the 60s, and you know the food was just awful, wasn't it? In fact, um, I think I remember you um, taking on the poison chalice of British Rail food <laughs> and and also hospital food. Which, given the kind of pandemic, that's that you know good hospital food and good food in general should be a should be more important than ever. I mean, do you, do you think there's any government commitment to that? I do now. I really do. And it's very interesting because when they asked me if I would work on this hospital food review and be a sort of advisor in general help, I said no. At first I said no because I had seen what had happened before. They had asked Albert Roux, they'd asked Lloyd Grossman, they'd asked James Martin. Various chefs had been asked at various times to help with hospital food. And each time they did some good work and they would turn around some hospital's food as a pilot and the idea being that it would then be rolled out. And, of course, by the time they got to the rolling out stage, the minister would have changed, priorities would have changed, the money would have gone west, you know, there wasn't any more money for it. And these guys had given their time for free and lots of chefs had been involved and it was heartbreaking. So I just said no because I thought this is just another government um, initiative where some minister will stand up, have a photograph, something good will be announced for five minutes, the press will think well of them, or the public will think well of them, and then they'll move on to the next initiative. And so I said no, and then Matt Hancock rang me up and said, look, I hear you don't want to do this, I really want to do it. And he managed to persuade me that he was hanging his hat on the principle that patients were customers, that they should be individually treated, not just in food, but in healthcare, it should be patient-centered. Mm. He was really convincing. And so I said, yeah, that's all very well, but how about Downing Street? You know, if, if Downing Street aren't behind it, we'll do a lot of work for nothing. And so then I, I went off rather hilariously to have breakfast with Boris, who was going to um, oh, yes. tell me, you know, convince me that he was behind it. <laughs> And we had a you know typical, quite amusing Boris breakfast. He did manage to say the right things that yes, he believed in it, and that that mm. it was important that patients should have food that they like. I think I think if anyone if anyone can fix hospital food, it's it's Prue Lee. You sound like you've got a bit of a soft spot for Boris. How do you think he's been during <laughs> during these past nine months? I think he's done really badly because I think anybody in that position would do really badly. I I, I do feel sorry for him. I mm. you know. You know, he's much criticised for changing his mind, but COVID changes its mind. Mm. You know, we don't we don't know enough. You know, one day we'll find that he did some things that were really wrong, and sometimes we'll and some things we'll do really right. But you look at the rest of Europe; they're not doing very much better, are they? They've all got a third lockdown, one way and another. Yes, it just seems to me that his essential being is. Is of a of a sort of galvanizer and a cheerer up. Yeah, he's in the wrong job at the moment, isn't he? I mean, mm. he is such a, a, a an optimist. He always wants to find a way to do things. Uh, and um, poor guy. I mean, anyhow, one of the one of the um, good things about COVID, terrible to say, is mm. that the prime minister got it, and yes, he came out of hospital realizing that he was too fat and that he had put his life in danger because his diet was lousy. 
and he's trying to fix that. And so that was good because it made, I know for one thing that he's keen on the hospital food report because it chimes with his own experience. Yeah. So tell me, what, what does the, what does the, the, the near future hold for, for Pruley? To be honest, I am, I'm not working on anything at the moment. And the reason is because I'm moving house. And um, we moved in two days ago. And so I'm surrounded by boxes. The kitchen is absolutely wonderful. It's huge. And I can't work any of it because it's all new machines. <laughs> I mean, yesterday I was, my husband said that my language was, would have done credit to a stevedore. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't make the microwave work. I think it's very encouraging. Prulis cannot operate own oven. I can't. No, I, I managed to break the microwave. Microwave now doesn't work at all. I got so cross with it. There's a great British Bake Off special on Christmas Eve. What what can we look forward to in that? I think you will have a lot of fun. It's it's previous bakers, some of them ones with the greatest personalities. And yeah. I like to I really like doing the celebrity bake offs and the Christmas ones because there's slightly less pressure. You know, the bakers coming in, of course they still want to win, but they've already done well in the first, you know, before. And they've really come back into the tent because they want to be there and it's good fun. And it's not the end of the world if they don't win Star Baker. So it has a much more lighthearted and festive spirit to it. Do you have a favourite baker from all the series that you've judged? Well, I suppose I like Raoul mm. a lot. He is such an individual and funny fellow. I mean, he was very sort of nervous. You know how he would chatter away and wouldn't stop talking. And he's so sweet. When we went to the BAFTAs together, he was too nervous to go by himself. So they asked me if I if we could share a taxi and go together. And so I collected him. And on, in the taxi, he said, I'm, I'm really nervous. You'll have to hold my hand because he had to walk down the red carpet, you know, and talk to all the mm. press. And so I, I thought he was meaning figuratively. So I said, yes, of course, you know, we'll, we'll go together. So we walked down and he's holding my hand. He's hold, literally like a little boy. He's holding my hand. Of course, the press just loved him. And immediately he got talking about baking and stuff he knows about and science. He's a great scientist. And it was pouring with rain. And I just wanted to get through the red carpet and out of the rain and a drink in my hand. And Roel was having such a good time. <laughs> so I abandoned him and he was absolutely fine. <laughs> But he, I, I, I do love him. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. And it's a very happy Christmas and a definitely a better new year to soon to be Dame Prulis. Thank you so much. <laughs> don't, don't, don't say that. They are, people will believe it. <laughs> that sounded like good fun, Alison. Prulis broke her own microwave. <laughs> I know. Don't you love a Liam? I mean, I thought there's that bracing common sense, somebody of her age saying... You know, you don't want to give the vaccines to people like me who've had a great life and give it to the young and you want to save the younger people, not the oldies. I, I don't actually agree with her. I do think it's right that they should be vaccinating the older and more vulnerable. But what a great what a great attitude and what an extraordinary life she's had. I've got an idea, Alison. Maybe if you help Prue Leith to become a dame, she can help you. But I have to say, after our pontifications on Planet Normal, <laughs> you've probably blown it. If any husbands are listening in and, and needing some last-minute present ideas, I thought the electric masher wasn't wasn't a bad idea, Liam. I mean, you you, you do you do realise that because um, because all the shops have been closed, that men are going to be even more useless than usual at buying Christmas presents. The electric potato masher <laughs> available at your nearest petrol station, maybe. <laughs> 
So onto our reader emails, a selection of the messages that you, our listeners, send to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. For Liam and I, this is the main reason we record Planet Normal each week, because of the remarkable feedback we get and what we learn from you, our fellow citizens of Planet Normal. Here's one that caught my eye this week. Liam, you'll remember that Robert Styler was able to go into the care home and have a reunion with his beloved wife, Josephine. And you wrote about it in the paper today. Well done you. I did. And listeners have been so moved by their story. And Christopher writes, wonderful news. Every time you mention their names, my wife and I teared up because of how lovely they are and how evil the handling of them and countless thousands of others has been. Thanks for banging on about it. If anyone hasn't tuned into Planet Normal yet, you must catch up on the back issues. Truly a small window of sunshine in this ongoing ice age. Thank you, Christopher. This is from Duncan. Alison and Liam, and he singles you out in particular, Alison, for this one. Velma-tastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you for pushing the politicians hard and constantly to justify what they're doing. It seems to me you're the model of what journalists should be. I have a PhD in applied physics, haven't we all? I also spent 20 years as a scientist and teacher, says Duncan. I'm used to analysing scientific claims, and I just want to say I'm not hearing anything from the government that convinces me that justifies this latest increase in lockdown rules. Yet again, isolated bits of information cannot be used to put forward such an impactful strategy. I'm concerned about the lack of realistic modelling data, and then there's the continued lack of context. Are hospital beds actually under pressure? Any more pressure than normal? There have been roughly 65,000 excess deaths in the UK, says Duncan, and many of them could have been caused by COVID. We should acknowledge something bad is happening, but it doesn't immediately follow. We should lock down the whole country, send a significant proportion of the population into lonely oblivion and condemn countless children to a likely future without their mother due to a lack of testing for breast cancer. This might be the single thing, says Duncan, that makes me most angry. There seems to be some lack of collective intellectual rigour that struck our government and our society. My best wishes to my fellow planet normal citizens. What a fantastic email from Duncan. I think really summing up all our concerns and paying tribute, co-pilot Halligan, to Velma Tastic, who doesn't have a PhD in applied physics, but nevertheless has struggled. It's only a matter of time. (laughs) perhaps retaking the maths O level. (laughs) Who knows? I'm on a bit of a roll now. (laughs) This is a great email, which sums up a lot of the year as well. This is from Dorothy. My husband died at the end of May. I was unable to visit him for eight weeks before that. Only 16 at the funeral. The wake was during a cloudburst in six garages, kindly supplied by my wonderful neighbours, moving their cars and leaving the doors up ready while we were at the crematorium. Bring your own coffee sandwiches, thanks to the local pub, which supplied them all individually wrapped and labelled. My family begged me to join them for Christmas, but I said, no, thank you. Grandchildren, 119 and 120, third year uni. They have had a far worse time than I have. No A-levels, very few face-to-face lectures, no friends to see, part-time jobs impossible, university fees and rent for housing to find. Now they are both at home and in tier four. I'm here alone, tree lights on, presents, many Amazon unwrapped, my crib all ready, empty manger until very late on the 24th. The Christ child will be lifted from his annual lurking among table mats and salt and pepper in the top drawer and placed (laughs) in the manger. 
I have many happy memories, but this is my first Christmas in 86. I have been alone. I'm due to receive my second COVID vaccination on January the 4th. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Oh, wow. God bless you, Dorothy. Uh, and everybody, everybody like Dorothy, many, many who will be spending this Christmas alone, but we'll all be with you in spirit. And I know it looks like we're getting into lockdown again, Liam, from Boxing Day. But as Robert Styler said when he told us about his reunion with Josephine, he said, looking forward to the mass prison breakout in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> I'll raise a glass of mulled wine to our mass prison breakout. Well said, Robert and Dorothy. We're going to close down Dick and Harry and put all the work into Tom, <laughs> as in The Great Escape, yes. Dickie Attenborough. Yes. How about before we go on, we listen to some 15 seconds of fame. Last week, we asked you to ring 07867162170 and leave a 15-second message why you like Planet Normal and which policy you'd like Boris Johnson's government to adopt in 2021. Here's a selection. Keith Tansley, East Oakwell, Devon. I love Planet Normal because it gives me hope. I hope Boris Johnson will stick to his Brexit promise and that we leave promptly and correctly. This is Jeff from Beaconsfield. We love Planet Normal. It's a highlight of our week, which is saying something. Criteria for becoming an MP must include having a proper job in the private sector first. My name is Anne Towers from Bedford. I would like to see the government to take a deeper look at how Taiwan successfully defends itself against this COVID-19 pandemic, how UK can learn from Taiwan, and what can we implement here. There's no shame to learn from someone who is successful. I thought they were fantastic, Alison. People wanting Brexit to be done, people wanting MPs to have proper jobs and some advice from Taiwan where they very successfully controlled the pandemic. Yeah, I thought that lady was great, wasn't she? Saying, let's just actually learn from them. I, I, I do think it's been a very narrow model. We've been following a very narrow model. Here's three more. 15 seconds of fame. Planet Normal to escape the madness of planet Earth. Please may I have a one-way ticket for my next trip. There's an overwhelming need and clear justification to restore our civil liberties. Bring back personal freedom and responsibility. Brought by Elizabeth Reed Chichester. Hello, this is Hilary from Arkfield, East Sussex. I love Planet Normal because it's such a breath of common sense. So good to know that others are thinking the same way. I think the government should abandon Sage and adopt Alison and Liam and put them in charge of COVID matters. Thank you. Bye-bye. The name's David Humphrey from Kent. New government policy this Christmas, test and turkey. Don't see your loved ones this Christmas. Instead, head down to your local COVID testing centre for a test and free turkey. Families of five or more receiving tests will also receive a free Hancock hamper, including a selection of mince pies cooked by Dishy Rishi. What do you think of that, Velma? In, in a Velma government, would you be handing out Hancock hampers? I think not. <laughs> What's going to be our acronym, though? MAD. What are we going to be? Mutually Assured Devastation, I think we're going to be. <laughs> Mutually Assured Diatribe. <laughs> 
That is perfect. At the risk of seeming a bit maudlin, we're both Celts, aren't we, Halligan? So we are indeed. Uh, I just want to say that uh, quite what many months ago now, you you persuaded me to do something I didn't know anything about called a podcast. Ooh. Lady Bracknell voice, a podcast. <laughs> but you persuaded me to do it, and I am really glad that you did because it's really helped me through this period and. It's a great source of joy that it seems to have sustained a lot of people, many of our listeners who've become regulars, and it does feel like we're a kind of a family. So thank you, co-pilot Halligan, for your drive and vision that created this rickety little rocket. We're still alive, aren't we? Scorching across the Christmas sky. I love those 15 seconds of fame. Do call again. We'll be playing more 15 Seconds of Fame next week, 07867 162 170. We'll put that number in the notes to this episode. Remember to say your name and where you're from so other listeners can hear you. Before we go, let's have a few more emails. Here's one from Tony. Boris stands up in Parliament and rebukes Mr Personality himself, Keir Starmer, about trying to ban Christmas. A few days later, and Boris does just that. And now we find out Neil Ferguson's back on board advising this hapless government. (laughs) I've just had bad news, says Tony. My uncle's died of COVID and this was contracted whilst he was in hospital for a urine infection. Yes, he was getting on in years. He was 90, but he was tested before going in and was negative. I dare say he'll be just another statistic that will be used to tell us what we should be doing in our everyday lives. And all this time, the economy takes yet more hits. I can't see why they're doing this. Can someone please explain why this self-harm is taking place? Just quickly, a lovely email from Richard Maidley, who was our Ah. guest on Planet Normal a couple of weeks ago. Richard says, Merry Christmas to everyone. Ours is in pieces, of course. That's Richard and Judy. We were supposed to have all the kids, partners and grandson here for lunch and a few more on Boxing Day, but that's all gone down the tubes. Just the missus and me and the turkey crown on the day. Hey ho. Hope to catch up with you all in 2021 when all this rubbish is behind us. I'm off to wrap loads of presents, put them under the tree and send the photos to our scattered brood. Zoom gathering on Christmas Day. Love, Richard. Be great to have him back on Planet Normal in 2021. And that's it for our latest trip to Planet Normal. Strap yourself in for re-entry to the madness of planet Earth. Keep your spacesuit handy for next week. We'll be back with another blast-off in our Rockets of Right Thinking, our capsule of common sense. Very happy Christmas to all our listeners. I'm going to ring my bell then. Um, (laughs) We really hope that you enjoy Planet Normal. If so, you can help us by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes. And do tell your friends the more the merrier. The more the merrier, Boris. Remember that, mate. The more the merrier. Do keep leaving voice messages on 07867 162 170. It's free. It's just a bit of fun. It's 15 seconds of fame, a 15-second message telling us why you love your trips to Planet Normal and with one policy you think this government should adopt in 2021. We'll be playing more of your messages next week. That number again, 07867 162 170. So do have a wonderful Christmas. I know it's a bit odd, but we'll all muddle through this year. Thanks again for listening and all your fantastic emails and for reading Liam and I in The Telegraph, of course. And for supporting our journalism generally. So stay safe, stay in touch with family and friends, and we'll be back soon. And as our beloved planet normal fades out of sight and Earth hoves into view, 
Thanks and Merry Christmas to our producers, Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Theola Ludis. Until our next voyage, happy Christmas, and it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>